0: That's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 to 24. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you also may know how I am and what I am doing, Titicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that we may, he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers, with, and love with faith, from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ, with love incorruptible. Amen. This is God's Word.
1: Let's pray just for concentration um, as we begin. Father God, we thank you for this uh, extraordinary passage of Scripture before us. We pray, Lord, that we would give it the attention it deserves, help us to concentrate at the end of a long day or a long week for many, and we pray that you would speak clearly to us all through your words. For Jesus' sake, amen. Now, on the back of the service sheet, um, there are some headings. We'll not get all the way through. We're going to go halfway, and we'll pick it up at some stage later in the term or year. Now, Paul's last word in this letter, chapter 6, verse 10 to the end, is indeed quite a few words. Finally, is followed by a great deal on the vitally important matter of spiritual warfare. Tonight is supposed to be our last study in Ephesians. We will not get through all the verses because I cannot send you home with a vague sense of atmosphere on which and with which to fight the devil. We've got to be precise and clear. I can't send you home with a sense that you have a set of armor without knowing how it is that you deploy that armor in fighting the devil. So we'll come back to this at some uh, stage. What I want to do, though, is commend to you what we do not cover tonight to your own study. And we can give you good aids to help you Uh, understand it. Last week, we focused on the need for vigilance. Every real Christian and every real living Christian church is engaged in spiritual warfare at a personal level and at a corporate level. You and I are engaged if we are Christians in a spiritual war. Together as a church, corporately, we are engaged in spiritual warfare. Our battle is not against flesh And blood, but the devil and his spiritual forces of evil that make up his army. His army is large, it is strong. His tactics are strategic and various. His focus to break the unity of a living church, to hinder a church's progress to maturity, to stop people in the church community speaking the truth in love to one another, to persuade to tempt us not to put off the old and put on the new. He loves it when we lie. He loves it when we indulge and engage in immorality. He loves it when we self-serve, not self-sacrifice. He loves debauchery. He loves falsehood. He is the tempter. He is the tempter. We are not tempted by lust. We are tempted by the devil to lust. It is the devil who is tempting always enticing. Be vigilant, Paul says, in your marriages, in your families, and at work. Be vigilant, but be confident. The devil's power is strong, but he has been defeated through the death and resurrection of Jesus by a greater power, the power of God. The devil has been defeated, and yet he fights on, Hence our need for vigilance, but he fights a lost battle. The last battle has been fought and won at the cross. His eternal damnation is inevitable when the Lord Jesus returns in glory and in power. And the Christian and a Christian church in whom the spirit of the living Christ reigns and lives is strong. Not strong in their own strength, but strong, chapter 6, verse 10, in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And so we can stand firm. Notice the repeated reference to standing. Just read with me again, verses 10 to 14. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to not fly with wings or soar or run, but stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand and having done all to stand, stand therefore. The picture to have in our minds perhaps is of a lighthouse perched on a rock out in the sea, battered by storms, but it withstands all that nature throws at it. It withstands the fiercest storms. It stands firm. It stands firm because it is well built on solid rock. And so it is for the Christian and for the living Christian church. They stand firm because they are well built and stand on a solid rock, Jesus now, that's the picture. That's the picture of what it means to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Now, think of Chalmers Church or Redeemer Church or Gracemount Church. Think of that church in all of the fragility that you understand it to have and then put that image back in your mind and put Chalmers Church, Redeemer Church or Gracemount Church on that rock. It will stand. It will withstand. It will stand fast. Now the Apostle Paul is a practical man and he does not want to leave us with a vague exhortation to stand firm. Rather, he wants to give us practical means of doing so. One of the devil's tactics tonight might be, to accept that we're on spiritual warfare, which he would not be keen that we were on, but if he can possibly make me as confusing as I have ever have been and send us away with some kind of vague atmosphere that the Bible says we can stand firm, but I didn't understand it, so I'm going to study it this week, but we don't get around to it, and we bypass Ephesians chapter 6 for three more years. Paul gives us practical day-to-day stuff. How is it that we encourage one another, and we've got to keep the corporate dimension of this to the fore, how is it we encourage one another in the church family to stand firm? What do we pray for somebody in our small group when they say, I am under spiritual attack, or I'm struggling with temptation"? Or I'm struggling with the lure and pull of the world. What should we say to them? If we say to them, I will pray for you, what should we pray for them? What should we be saying to one another? What's the flavor of a conversation after church on a Sunday night, after a sermon on spiritual armor? Now, the answer to the questions of how do we stand and withstand the devil's attacks is the armor of God. Now, two verses there just to navigate us in. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all, to stand firm. The evil day is every day until Jesus returns. That's what the phrase means. Put on and take up are the exhortations. That language continues through the verses that follow. Just look at your Bibles. Put on, there it is again in verses 14 and 15, and take up in verses 16 and 17. Put on and take up sounds very much like we are to do something. But how does that sit alongside language like verse 10? Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. That sounds like be something. So, which is it? Is it do something or is it be something? Now, this is critically important in Ephesians and indeed in the Christian life. So, listen well to this. Listen to what the armor is. The armor is the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, shoes for your feet, the readiness given by the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and so on. Now, take out the soldier imagery. Soldier's just a fighter. What's the armor, really? Truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, and salvation. These are not things that we take up or put on after we become Christians. Rather, this is who we are as Christians, who we are as a Christian church. When we believed in Christ, whenever that was, he clothed us then in his gospel armor. Now, that's one of the dimensions of union with Christ through conversion, We talk of Jesus in the person of his spirit and dwelling a believer. That is conversion. We talk equally of being clothed in righteousness. So a hymn-like, no condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine, alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine or uh, king of kings, majesty, majesty. In royal robes, righteous robes, I live to serve. And here in Ephesians 6, we have another dimension. When we believed in Christ, he clothed us in his gospel armor. His gospel armor. The same gospel armor that Jesus faced Satan with when he was tempted in the wilderness. When we believed in Christ, he clothed us in his gospel armor. In this life, every day of this life, we wear Christ's gospel armor. We wear it every day. It is only in the life to come that we will shed this gospel armor. And so if Christ clothes us in his gospel armor, when we become Christians... Why then does Paul say, put it on, or take it up? Why the exhortations? Well, that is entirely consistent with the exhortational language that is run right through the second half of Ephesians. He exhorts us to put it on and take it up because we let our guard down, because we are not vigilant, because we forget Tonight, we gather around the Lord's table to eat bread and drink wine in memory of Jesus. We do not gather around that table in order to be saved. We do it to remember we are saved. Tonight, we are reminded in Ephesians that we are in a spiritual battle, that we have been clothed in Christ's gospel armor, that we need to remember that, to draw on the strength it gives us, to use the weapons at our disposal, to encourage one another to the same, so that individually and corporately we will be when the storm hits or when Monday morning hits, strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, putting on The full armor of God. Now, let's consider uh, some pieces of this gospel armor that we are clothed in for the spiritual uh, battle. The the imagery Paul uses, uh, the Roman soldier, if you've been a Christian for many years, or if you have uh, children uh, in the church, they will have come home with a picture of a Roman soldier with a helmet and the shoes and the this and the that and the other. Um, Why does Paul pick a Roman soldier as his metaphor? Perhaps because he was chained to one when he wrote this. More likely, he just picked a soldier because a soldier is a soldier. And this is a battle. It's just a good imagery. But let's not get carried away. Preachers get carried away with this stuff. What's the armor? Forget the imagery. Just a soldier. What's the armor? The armor is truth and righteousness and peace and faith and salvation and the Bible and prayer. That's the armor. That's the list. I want you to remember. Forget the belt and the breastplate and the shoes and the shield, and the helmet and the sword, or whatever other contemporary equivalent you can come up with, that will not protect you from the devil. Righteousness will. Faith will. Salvation will. You see why? Paul does not want us to have a picture of a Roman soldier left in our minds at the end of Ephesians. Paul wants us to have a picture of Jesus in our minds at the end of Ephesians. Him engaging in the battle and defeating Satan, and you standing in Christ, in his victory, in the strength of his might. Now, tonight, um, in my determination to uh, preach shorter sermons with less content, Uh, and I think it is good to do that, and you are encouraging us in books like this to do that. Books like Acts are big picture sweet books, but this is dense, detailed stuff, and I'm not sending you home with some kind of vague atmosphere to think I can do this stuff. We're going to look at three bits of the armor tonight. Truth, righteousness, and the gospel of peace. And you can see my point. What is truth? And how do we use it to fight off the devil? What is righteousness exactly? And what is the gospel of peace? Truth first. What does Paul mean by truth? And how does truth enable us to stand firm against the devil's attack? Well, truth means, here I think, on the one hand, the truth of the gospel. And what that means, when, when we say something like the truth of the gospel, what we mean by that is all that God has revealed to us in his word about salvation. Everything he has said about salvation. We might describe it as a Christian gospel worldview. And a Christian or a Christian church has had their eyes open to see things as they truly are. One of the devil's primary tactics in spiritual warfare is to convince us that God is not powerful, that the church is weak, and that Christians are weak. The little church in Ephesus felt acutely its weakness. Little churches in Scotland increasingly feel acutely their weakness. The devil would have us believe that true power, real power, is in his world. And on the face of it, it looks like he is right. But God's word, not least in Ephesians, this letter, tells us that the future is a new creation where all things will be united under Christ. If you like, the future is one big church. That's what the new creation is, where all things are united under Christ. And in the present, that supernatural unity is revealed through living churches scattered all over the world churches that are multiplying as the promise of God is fulfilled on the earth, human history reaching that inevitable conclusion that is Christ's glorious return, that is the truth. And it will never feel like it. It will never look like it, which is why Jesus inspired his apostles to write down his words that we might believe it. The power at work in believers, you, the power at work in a living local church is immeasurably great. That's the language of Ephesians. Do not let the devil persuade you otherwise. You know the truth. Do not trust to how you feel as much as what you know. Do not let the devil persuade you that the battle is not yet won. It has been won. Do not let the devil persuade you that you are ever for a moment on the losing side. You are not. You are on the winning side. Do not let him tempt you to think Redeemer will fail, that people will not be converted, that the church will not grow. The power of God at work within his church is immeasurably great. Our strength is in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Do not let the devil ever persuade you otherwise. Moreover, do not let the devil persuade you to live for this world or what it offers. This world is his territory. It is full of lies. Do not be fooled. Do not be tempted. Do not be seduced. Live in the world, yes, but not for the world. Live in this world for the world to come, making decisions individually and as a church based on on eternity, not now. Truth is a great defense against the devil and his lies. Truth is a great offense. Offense is the right word because the battle is with lies. Truth offends the devil. Truth disarms the devil. Armed with truth, the church, the Christian, stands fast. Spin the truth, compromise the truth, abandon the truth, the church will crash, usually over a generation, because it gets a hearing for 20 years before it crashes. Pray for local churches in East Asia as they face real hostility, that the truth God has revealed in his word will be their strength and their stay and their courage, such that they will withstand. Pray for local living churches in East Asia as they begin 10 or 20 years of intense opposition, that they will know the truth, teach the truth, and the people we know there will teach the teachers to teach the truth, that they will stand. Pray for new churches being planted in Scotland and old new churches like Grace Mount planted because they are convinced by letters like Ephesians that church planting is normal. Pray these churches will establish and grow and not be taken out. Pray people will be converted. Pray with confidence to God that his immeasurably great power would manifest itself in and through these churches and in the churches that plant them So the ones that plant them would plant more churches as soon as they have dusted themselves down. And I mean that. Within five years or ten years, Chama should plant another church. Within ten years, Redeemer should plant a church. Within five years, ten years, a church like Grace Mount, it's a different context, but should be training Church planters who will plant churches. Confident, confident in the power of truth. Pray for one another, that we will not be seduced into living for this world, but for the world to come. Pray that we will be invested for eternity with what we do with our lives. Truth. Truth also means uh, honesty, sincerity, and integrity. Uh, What Paul does is he gives us this grand stuff, and then he brings us down to earth. Remember, he's just talked about work, family, marriage. So, he brings us down to earth. Truth means honesty, sincerity, and integrity. The Christian is to be honest and truthful, for example, at work. The devil wants us, tempts us, not to be people of truth and integrity. Whenever I speak about work, I mean my work as well as your work, as if in churches there was sometimes not truth. Of course there is. Work is work. The devil wants us to blend in with his world. He wants to dull our distinctiveness. He hates transparency. He loves darkness. Light causes him to flee. Paul said earlier in Ephesians, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth. Pray for one another. Pray for one another in your small groups. Perhaps in particular for people who are working for honesty, for sincerity, for integrity, for truthfulness. Wearing Jesus' armour is just as important at work on a Monday a Christian worker or a boss working or leading with integrity, truthfulness, whose word can be trusted, who does not engage in office back chat or staff room back chat or church office back chat or politics, whose yes is yes, whose no is no stands out and is noticed over a lifetime. Is that biblical? Well, read a book like Daniel. Pray that for one another. Truth at that very basic level of not engaging in stuff that is falsehood is you wearing Christ's gospel armor. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness. What does Paul mean by righteousness? And how does righteousness enable us to stand firm against the devil's attack? Well, righteousness is what is required for a relationship with God. No one is righteous are capable of attaining righteousness themselves. Righteousness is what is given to a Christian by grace through faith, Ephesians 2. What makes it possible for Jesus to give us his righteousness is his death. So a Christian is someone who has been declared righteous by God to be righteous because of Jesus' death. That person, you, is in a right, literally a righteous relationship with God. That is who you are, righteous in God's sight, Christ's righteousness given to you. You are in a right relationship with God. You are eternally saved, and you're not alone. That's what a church family is made up of. People who have been declared righteous through faith. Now, why is righteousness that you wear, that declaration of right standing with God that Christ has put onto you, why is that such an important piece of gospel armor? Individually and corporately as a church. Because two of the devil's flaming darts, two of his best honed arrows, are doubt and guilt. Who hasn't felt these darts? The evil one of the devil will do his best to rob us of the assurance of our salvation. He will fire his darts of doubt in this life. He will fire his darts of doubt when you are in green pastures in life. He will fire his darts of doubt when you are in dark valleys in life. He will fire his darts of doubt when you are in the darkest valley of all. He cannot, in firing these darts of doubt, change in any way, our eternal destiny. But he will be satisfied with his pyrrhic victory of robbing us of assurance on the journey to that destiny. That is why Paul wrote Romans 8. What assurance and reassurance that chapter in God's Word has brought to doubting Christians time and again that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And at the end of Romans 8, Paul asks the question, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? The charge being, you are not righteous. What can we say to the devil who brings against your heart or mind a charge that says you are unforgiven, How can we be sure, 100% sure, that we are forgiven or justified, declared righteous, because it is God who justifies, literally declares us righteous. Who is to condemn? There is no condemnation. Why? Because, Romans 8, 34, Christ is the one who died. No condemnation. You see why a vague atmosphere of wearing armor doesn't do us much good? Do you understand exactly what it means to be righteous? One of the most influential books ever written by a Christian that's not the Bible was John Stott's The Cross of Christ, where he explained in his lucid and succinct way answers to questions like, do you understand exactly what it means to be righteous? Do you understand that when you believed you were clothed in righteousness divine, do you understand that your righteousness is Christ's righteousness? Do you understand that you have that divine armor against the devil's flaming arrows of doubt? Come on, the devil says. You can't Be certain. Yes, you can. But you still sin. How can that sin be forgiven? All our sin, past, present, future, is forgiven. Now that is strong armor. Now there are 130 people here tonight. There is someone here who is clearly converted who has been assailed all through their Christian life with this flaming dart called doubt. It doesn't just come at the end of life. What do we do as a church? If you know who that person is, speak to them, pray with them. Take it upon your heart to pray that that arrow will be what they are able to put up their shield against, how do they fight back that doubt with truth? With truth. Speak the truth in love to them. Speak to them of Jesus' death. Tell them never to miss a communion service. Pray with them that they might know the deep, life-changing assurance of no condemnation. If doubt is one of the devil's darts, so also is guilt, in a similar dart to doubt, but a different dart. You know the latest vogue term in sport is the sum of marginal gains. That's why an England football team got to the semi-final. It's why we heard endlessly, bring it home, Nearly. The devil works with marginal gains. He will fire darts of doubt. He will fire darts of guilt. You may not doubt your salvation, but guilt for something in the past may dog you. There was a period in my life, nothing dramatic, but guilt dogged me. It dogged me like a fiery dart that keeps coming at you. Your last thought, your first thought. That's the devil. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, how casually we sometimes sing these words, upward I look and see who, him, Jesus, there, who made an end to all my sin. And that means guilt to. Guilt is forgiven and forgotten as much as sin is forgiven and forgotten. Christ's gospel armor of righteousness. One last thing to say about righteousness. You see why we couldn't get through all the armor, uh, this bit of gospel armor, and that has to do with how we deal with sin. How do we approach, as Christians in a church, How do you and your small group, as you pray for each other in the battles with sin, how do you and your one-on-ones with the church, that only other person that really knows what the battles are in your heart, how do you engage as a Christian with sin? How do we encourage each other in our church family? What do we pray? The devil will try to persuade you and me that we cannot make progress with sin, or at least that particular sin. He will convince us that we can't. He will convince us that we don't want to. The devil will try his best, but wearing Christ's gospel armor of righteousness makes us see sin differently. Think of some area in your life as a Christian that you cannot seem to make progress with that the Bible calls uh, sin. Now, think of it. and Stick your hand up if you can't think of any, hands down. Think of that, or think of the practical stuff in Ephesians to help you work life and marriage. All that stuff about purity, sexual morality in chapter 5. How do you see that sin, that area of sin, that low-grade, low-volume sin that's gone on for years? Wearing Christ's gospel armor of righteousness makes you see that sin as forgiven sin. Forgiven sin. It makes you see that sin as dying sin. Why? Because that sin has been mortally wounded or fatally wounded through Jesus' death. It is dying out. It will be gone in the new creation. So, kill it in the strength of Jesus' might. You never think you'd hear me preach, name it and claim it. Name that sin and claim Christ's righteousness, and kill it. That's where the hand-to-hand combat, wrestling with sin in the spiritual realm, fighting sin, fighting sin, fighting sin, not as a victim, but as a victor over sin. And that is not the power of persuasive thinking. It is the pure power of gospel logic, and the pure power of the resurrected Christ with his Spirit living within us. So pray that for one another. Pray that for the person that you meet in with week after week, month after month. And when you share with them and them with you of this accountability or that, and there is little progress, pray that you will be persuaded by the logic of the gospel with relation to that sin and kill it in the power of the righteousness of Jesus. And do not let the devil whisper in your ear or my ear now, he doesn't mean you. He doesn't mean you. Now, lastly, peace as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. What exactly is the gospel of peace in the context of Ephesians? Now, it is about as far removed from atmosphere or warm, fuzzy feelings as it could possibly be. The gospel of peace in the context of Ephesians is the power of God to reconcile us to him and to one another. Peace is an objective fact. We are at peace with God, reconciled in the gospel, and with one another, reconciled. That is a big, big deal in Ephesians, particularly the emphasis on reconciliation with one another. This is the power of God, to reconcile human beings and thus to make a church. That's who we are as a church. We are, above all else, a group of people living on the earth who are supernaturally united to one another and in Christ. Hostility between us as a little group of human beings has ceased. Unity in the church is a big theme in Ephesians. Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And if the devil wants one thing more than anything else in the life of a local church, and we can be specific, Redeemer, Grace Mount Chambers, it is disunity. 100%. That's why the gospel of peace is part of our spiritual armor because the devil wants to disunite us. We can stand against that threat. Together we can stand against that threat, remembering who we are in Jesus reconciled to one another. The devil has big, fiery darts of disunity. They're called cannonballs that he flings at the church, but he has tiny little darts of disunity, not a cannonball lobbed at the church, but a little dart that's directed at you, just to make you less humble more divisive, more critical. Which is why we need to remember and remind one another and pray cognizant of the fact that we are supernaturally united in Christ. Why does Paul speak about readiness given by the gospel of peace? What kind of shoes are they? I don't know. I think he means steadfastness. It might be that the gospel of peace is something we should speak out as well as stand fast in. All of that is true, but he gets to that later on in the verses. Now, that's as far as we'll get tonight. Be vigilant. Spiritual warfare is real, but be confident. When we believed in Christ, we were clothed in his spiritual armor. And we can stand firm in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Remember that picture of the lighthouse perched on a rock out on the sea, battered by storms. Had there been lighthouses, Paul would have used one. Maybe there were. That lighthouse on the rock withstands all that nature can throw at it. It stands firm because it is well built on a solid rock. So it is for the Christian, which is why we are inflexible in our commitment to the Word of God and the simple gospel, for that is the solid rock. So it is for a living Christian church as they stand firm against the devil's schemes because they are well built by God on the solid rock of Christ. You see, we wear Christ's armor, which means we have him, Jesus with us, in us by his spirit. We have his armor and we have his flesh. And when the devil's fiery darts get through as they do, And we think we are not going to be able to stand or withstand. We remember, because we go to church, or we go to a small group, or we have a good conversation after the service, that the rock on which we build our lives is the one who defeated Satan, the one who clothes us in his armor, the one who holds us fast, the one who holds you fast, the one who will never, ever, ever let go. Well, let's be quiet for a minute and then I'll pray. Father God, we thank you for this rich passage of Scripture, rich and practical in its teaching. Gospel armor, truth, and righteousness, and peace. Help us, Lord, to help one another. Be vigilant and be confident, and to endure in the Christian life and to keep standing. We pray that very much tonight for Grace Mount, for Redeemer, for Haddington, for Esk Valley. And for the planting churches, may these churches stand and grow and thrive. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.